The Happy Bear podcast is sponsored by Vivo Barefoot Shoes and Instant Brand Cooking Appliances. To learn about current offers on or avail of any discounts, check out the link down below in the show notes. This week's guest is Dr. Alex George. He's a medical doctor that specialises in A&E. He was on Love Island in 2018, where he went from 200 followers to 1 million followers in the space of nine weeks on Instagram. He's an advocate of mental health. He works with 10 Downing Street as an ambassador for mental health and really has written four books on the topic of mental health and mental fitness. It's a wonderful conversation where we talk about giving up alcohol. Alex is a year off alcohol and talks about the benefits and how there's so much to gain in taking a break from alcohol. We talk about ADHD as an adult diagnosis and how that helped Alex hugely. Talk about men's mental health and children's mental health and just basic practical things which each one of us can do for our mental health, the importance of mental fitness on a daily basis. It's a wonderful conversation. We hope you really enjoy it. If you're one of our amazing listeners that listen on the very first day this podcast comes out, our Alcohol Free Challenge is live. It's a four-week course to support you to form healthy habits when you take a break from alcohol. Uh, tomorrow, that's Thursday the 11th of January, we've got our first cook-along for everyone on the challenge. So literally everyone cooks together online. It's really cool. It's great. Um, you can still sign up. There's a link down below if you're interested in joining our alcohol-free challenge. Okay, want to kick it off. You're a year off alcohol. We haven't drank for 22 years and we found it to be one of the greatest catalysts for our health and well-being in general. How have you found it, the experience for yourself? It's been amazing. And, you know, we met obviously at um, uh, an event a, a while ago. And the thing is, like, I can tell, you know, that you guys are so kind of fit and healthy and well, and you look well. And I think this is a look that people have when they don't drink alcohol. Let's be just frank. Like, you just look really like, got color in your eyes, got white eyes, you're just fresh. And I think with me, before I was drinking, I was using alcohol to numb so much stuff that's happened in my life over the last few years and just. Also, without even realizing it, using it to kind of manage and numb ADHD. Um, we know that you know a lot of people with ADHD, around half of all people with ADHD, use alcohol to try and manage their symptoms, even if they don't even know they have ADHD. And I was diagnosed about two years ago, and I think I, I had this like switch in my head went, and I realized all of a sudden, like I'm using alcohol um, for a purpose that's actually just becoming really unhealthy. So I got to a point where it was. 20 plus stone in weight. And for context, I'm a six foot three guy. So I'm a tall guy, but you know, I've always been quite muscular, played rugby, but, but lean, right? You know, fit and strong and lean. And you know, I was 20 stone and, you know, I didn't exercise anymore. I ate rubbish, I had no energy. And I'm a very energetic person, a very driven person. And I realized that alcohol is just being used for all the wrong things. And, you know, also I'd say, you know, people think, oh gosh, you must have been drinking all the time. I was drinking three nights a week, which is pretty like, I'm not saying I use the word normal very careful here, but it's very common in London, for example, for people of my age, you know, in your late 20s and early 30s, drinking two or three nights a week, you know, four or five pints in the pub. But the knock-on effect of those drinks was was huge. So yeah, I just stopped um, the 4th of December, um, 2022. I had the whole of 2023 without drinking. I still don't drink. I don't really have an interest in alcohol. And it's changed my life. I mean, it's it's been, I cannot put that in any way that is less encapsulating of how I feel. Like I don't want to underplay it. It has changed my life. You know, I've lost six stone. The fit six is strong. Stone. Congratulations. Stone. That's immense. You can really see it in your face. You can really see it in your face. Like you're you know, you've got huge yeah. definition in your face. Whereas I saw a photo 
online of you before and there was yeah. it was a bit rounder yeah I, I listen i was 20 like let's put it how it is i was i was obese i was huge and um i'm not being nasty towards size i have always been about body positivity and i'm very kind and compassionate to who i was i mean i look back with compassion to that person you know and i think a lot of the time people think oh i need to lose weight it's just, you know it's how i look and I actually no like be compassionate to yourself like i was a very hurt person and i was gone, gone through a lot and and i i was in that place and food and alcohol was playing a role for me it was doing something in my life and and obviously that i got to a point where i wanted to change that but i don't look at myself back then and think oh you're any worth any less worth what you are now or that you're you know any less lovable i just see myself then and understand the pain and like now i'm just in a very different place and you know the thing is for me the biggest thing was never to think about the weight i never weighed myself throughout i never counted calories all I did, the only thing I restricted was alcohol. The only thing I removed was alcohol. I filled my plate full of as many colors as I could. I ate as much food as I could to, to nourish my body. I basically focused on fueling my body and being like, right, I want to eat like as much stuff that is good for me. And like, I, I, I think a lot of the time when you get into a restrictive mindset, what happens is that it becomes a punishment to yourself. And that's just such a stupid thing. And it's why a fundamental reason why diets don't work. I mean, the science is that diets don't work because people, um, unless you make a genuine life change that is sustained for your life, you will revert to your previous state. And as a lot of studies have shown that is that people that go on diets often end up being as heavy or bigger than they were before. And that's because it's always something that is goal-driven and time you know, all about with time or like, in ca- you know, controlled by time. Whereas when you focus of like, right, I want to be this, what kind of person do I want to be? Well, I want to be fit and healthy, eat well, have energy, feel good, um, be happy. When you look at that as a goal rather than weights on the scales or calories or a certain body type, all of a sudden it changes. People mess with you going, oh, Alex, you've got, you ripped and you're, you're, you're so fit and you're so strong now. And I'm like, yeah, but that's just like part of the lifestyle of my it's not the end goal. It's just the part of what comes with enjoying exercise, enjoying the food. So, yeah, sobriety has been amazing for me. I've loved it. And, yeah, I love talking about it, really. And what would you say to anyone who's listening that goes, mm, that sounds really interesting. Like, what piece of advice would you give them to get started on this journey? And not necessarily give up, but even just reflecting on it or taking a break or whatnot. Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, you know, you guys have doing for like over 20 years, you've done it for a long time. And in a way, I look up to, you know, people look at different stages of it. I look up to you guys and like, I want to be 20 years in and be like, I've done 20 years without this. Like, that's where I want to get to, which is really exciting for me. So I really look up to you and see what you've done. And I think I'd imagine a lot of what you've achieved and you've been able to do together, uh, you know, with uh, as a business, but also with your families and like the fitness and everything you do is probably, I'd imagine, you know, part of the package, like we say, it's part of the lifestyle of someone that doesn't drink. And I think I'd say to anyone that's thinking about it, just give it a go. I've never met anyone that's regretted going alcohol free. And if you don't like it, you can always drink again. I think it's always worth trying. And a lot of people would say, well, I don't want to give up together um and that's cool and i i wouldn't ever stand here go i'm never going to drink again i don't know what the future holds one thing i think i'm pretty sure of is that it's changed my relationship like if i did drink again it would be a very very different way as the past but to be honest i don't really have an interest right now i get up each day and i'm like cool i'm happy i went out on friday night my friend had um housewarming parties got his first ever house or flat in london a flat um good on him he's done really well and i went to that i went to a brewery afterwards i and i had alcohol free beer and i got up the next morning i felt completely fresh i went to the gym i went for brunch i saw another friend i read books in the afternoon and felt amazing like why would i would not want to give that up so i'd say to anyone listening like 
give it a go. Like, I never thought I'd be a person who was alcohol free. I just never. I grew up in Wales, played rugby, went to med school. We drink quite a lot. I just thought like it's just part of my life. But yeah. I, and what was it? What was it initially that made you like made you question your relationship with alcohol? Was it the fact that you just you were feeling unhealthy in your body and you thought, right, let's try something different? Or like, was there any one moment, or did it just slowly yeah, I, dawn? There was you? a moment. I think there was over time, but there was just like a moment towards. Basically, you know, I look back on my life and think a lot has happened. You know, I, I grew up in West Wales. I went to you know my family are from very humble beginnings. Like we've known that went to university from my family. I really wanted to be a doctor. Applied to med school. Um, I took me a wild game. I got in. I went to uni at Exeter, so down on the south coast of of England. And then when I graduated, moved to London. And I loved my job. I loved what I was doing. But a lot of living in London came with like drink and alcohol, and I probably drunk quite a lot more because of that. But I enjoyed my mid twenties. And then I went on that show Love Island when I was in yeah. what. I- 27-ish, that's 2018. And since then, my life has been a complete roller coaster. I've had the most unimaginable highs almost, but all also the most difficult of lows. You know, going on Love Island shook me in many ways. I mean, you go from someone who has 200 followers to a million followers. Now I've got 2 million followers and, you know, I'm way more known than I was then. But the, the growth from there has been much more steady from one to two. And I have done that in a very controlled way that I feel cut. I know what I'm doing. Whereas I went in about nine weeks from zero to a million. <laughs> and I think, you know, that what that does to a young boy, like to a young man really is, is, is crazy. So that shook me. I then, you know, was working in the pandemic and I, and I was one of the doctors that were sharing everything that we were seeing the pandemic from the front line. I worked in hospital, Lewisham uh, Hospital in, in London, and we were so hard hit. I was working every single day, but I was on BBC News, doing YouTube, I was doing Instagram, everything, telling everyone what was going on. And then at the end of the pandemic, when I was going to go back to my family in Wales and see them for the first time in like a year, you know, my brother, well, I got a phone call from my dad and my, my brother had taken his own life. You know, he died by suicide. Um, you know, he's a 19-year-old boy who had a place uh, at medical school in Stampton. He wanted to follow my footsteps. You know, it was 10 years between us. So we were very, very close. And he was gone. And, you know, all of a sudden I was like, boom, hit by this thing on top of many other things that had happened in recent years. And yeah, I think I, what did I do as my natural instinct is to work hard and to bury the pain. So I worked hard. I I decided to campaign in mental health and and got, um, well, campaigned to the government to make changes and said, look, why don't you come and be a volunteer as a mental health ambassador? And, you know, we can look at what you can do. And I never looked back. I just worked so hard in that space, hard on everything that I've done, uh, but I never dealt with the pain really. And so I guess the alcohol was part of that numbing. And eventually I realized there came a day where I was like, looked in the mirror and I looked in my eyes. Uh, actually, the day was I, I was down um, in my hairdressers and I was cutting my hair and I looked in my eyes in the mirror and I was like, I don't even know who I am anymore. Like, I don't recognize myself. I was like, I actually have lost myself completely. And that was the moment I just like a, click of the fingers almost in the, you know, my mind. I was like, that's it. And I never looked back. And on 4th of December, I stopped drinking. And, um, you know, it's been a very painful year. 2023 will always be, I think, the most painful year of my life because even though there wasn't necessarily the big things that happened that year, I had to face the pain. So from heartache to grief to the pandemic to grieving over the person that I'd become, um, I had to face that last year, but it means that going into this year, I, I feel energized. I found myself again. I'm in a great place and I'm excited. 
Jeez, wow. what wow. remarkable. And when you talk about like there that 2023 being so difficult and yet you didn't have any one big external event. I think giving up alcohol for me was that it made me not numb myself and made me actually, am I being true to my word? Am I being the person I want to be? You got to sit with that uncomfortableness, that kind of, that kind of awkward moment. You got to sit with it and see what comes up. And yeah, that I found that to be one of the greatest catalysts for becoming a better version of myself and having a better relationship with myself. Did you find as well over the years with, with your experiences of sobriety that you have to not just be honest about the person you are, but also how you're spending your time? Like, you know, you always hear people like, oh, it's boring not drinking. The truth is, if you're finding it boring not drinking, it means your life is boring. That's the honest thing. And I'm not talking about before anyone goes, oh, gosh, oh, yeah, not everyone could be. I'm not talking about going out and living YOLO, your best life, going on amazing plays all the time. I mean, like, it's learning to be able to sit by yourself, to be able to read, to be able to go outside and walk, to find enrichment, enjoying enjoyment in your life. Like if your life feels boring, it's because your connection with your life is lost. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I, I love, I do simple things every day. I don't have a crazy, like people might think I'd have a crazy life doing all this. Honestly, my favorite thing is go to the gym, go for a run, go for a walk with my dog, read books, chill, watch movies. And I love it. I'm not bored at all. I love it. But if you do find your life boring and you need alcohol, then that's quite a big thing. I don't know what you think, but you have to really yeah. like focus on your own life and like build enrichment in your own life. Like, What do you think? Yeah, I totally agree. Even a good barometer is if you're comfortable enough to go to the cinema by yourself and just go have a date by yourself and not feel self-conscious, not feel worried and be at ease. Like, I think that's a good barometer of... Being comfortable in yourself and not looking outside of yourself, like I always find that. No, when's the last time you went in the cinema in your Well, I'm a twin, so like I'm I'm a different <laughs> to normal. But my wife goes to the cinema all the time but by herself. Never, uh, have you ever gone to the cinema in your own? I went out. I went out by myself a couple of times. Very I remember being too. in Sweden. and I went out meeting people by myself. So I have. But as an going identical on twin, and no, no, <laughs> yeah, no, 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 going no. out to meet, to go out and see if life. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> right, we're going to stop there before I dig myself into a further hole. But now I can tell you for hanging me, Steve. <laughs> well, let's, you know, let's call a spade a spade here. Oh, there was one thing there on another note that you mentioned diagnosing yourself with ADHD. I'd love to know more about that because I see that in my own life. More and more friends are getting diagnosed as adults. And I'm wondering, like, what motivate you to, to do that? And what is the benefit of now having a, a, the diagnosis? As you may know, we're instant brand ambassadors. We adore their kitchen appliances. They're super, super useful. We're very grateful to anyone out there who's used our affiliate link over the last year. It Thank really you. does help. And if you are considering it and on the fence, this offer could get you over the fence. They're giving up to 50% off until the end of January of certain appliances within their catalogue. It's amazing. I use their Instant Vortex air fryer all the time. It's got two drawers in it. I use my Instant Pot Duo Plus regularly to make dals most weeks or curries or chilies. And I set it to come on most mornings to make my oat groats while I'm down swimming at the sea. To learn more about their amazing offer, which lasts till the end of January 2024, click the link below in our show notes. Yeah, so I um I basically all my life kind of questioned whether I did have it. It's like I I'm I'm someone that is yeah quite hyperactive, um, but I have incredible focuses of attention on things that I'm interested in, but complete lack of attention on things that I am not. For example, or things probably 
Interest is a little bit more complex. It's probably things that are genuinely useful in that moment. Like, for example, I can't remember my own mobile number. It takes me like two years. I changed my number two years ago and I probably only just learned my number. But I could, when I used to work in the ward on the hospital, I have like 25 patients in the ward. I could tell you every single blood test each of them had of 20 tests, what the numbers were, how they changed in the last few days. Like I, my memory for things that I need to remember, want to remember is really, really strong and like that attention is is great but when you're at school it's not good at all i mean i couldn't constrain class you know i got kicked out of class and all this kind of stuff i think also um adhd is not just about attention it's so much about your relationship with yourself your interactions with others the way that you see the world i mean the, the re the thing about adhd when it comes down to it, it it all comes down to this dopamine deficit and dopamine is um reward hormone i'm drawn well, really, you've got a, we've got four main ones. Dopamine's job is basically to give you a sense of fulfillment and reward. Like if you guys, you mentioned before we started that it was cold and you wanted to get outside, do some pull-ups, you know, and you probably felt good afterwards. You had a bit of a boost from that. You feel good, you feel fulfilled, you know, endorphins are a little bit, but dopamine gives you that sense of reward. Or, you know, if you sit down and you do a task and get jobs done for the day, dopamine, you feel great, you feel good about it. You also get dopamine from things like food and particularly sugary foods and alcohol. And that's where there can be real issues with ADHDs. You get dopamine from lots of places. But in ADHD, you have a dopamine deficit. And what this means effectively is that we are constantly looking for dopamine. So when you haven't got much dopamine, it makes you perhaps agitated, it can give you anxiety, it can make you uneasy, it can make your concentration being poor. It can also make your mood really up and down as well because your mood becomes attached quite strongly to reward. You know, and that sense of peace that a lot of people have, you don't have as easily. So um, throughout my life, I realized that I basically took a lot of risks, which if you think about even the things I've told you about, you know, I take huge risks. I'm someone that puts myself out there. I'm very grateful for that because I've lived, you know, I'm 30, nearly 33, and I've lived a very rich life, I think, because of that. I've tried, I've, tried, I've already tried so many different things in my life, but there are negatives. Um, and also with, the, with it as well, I always found that like food, I could binge eat very easily or like my things with alcohol was there, you know, very easily. And I think in my late 20s, I was like, why don't I just find out if I have it? And then if I have it, maybe there's something I can do about it. So I went to the psychiatrist and it takes quite a while to be diagnosed, but they're like, yeah, you've got pretty bond or ADHD. And it's 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 been one of the biggest things, honestly, that has changed my life. And the reason actually that I went to get the final diagnosis was because I had um, uh, Todd Latee, who's a very famous DJ. He's, he's um, married to Annie Mack, um, which many people will, will know. Um, so Todd Latee is you know, producer now. And I had him on the, my podcast, The Stompcast. We go walking with a guest um, and I kind of take a wander into their life, really, find out about their lives and try and pull out things that are helpful for listeners. And the premise is we get people walking while they're listening. Um, and I spoke to him and he got diagnosed with ADHD and he'd been using alcohol to numb his ADHD and when he went alcohol free and when he learned about ADHD it changed his life like he completely like had a complete outlook was calm was peaceful and I just was like oh my god like this is me I, I need this I want this for me and so when I got diagnosed that then with knock-on effect also was around sobriety like it was one of the factors that played into going sober and it's changed everything because I understand myself better. I make better decisions. Like, because I know I'm impulsive, I go, right, rather than making yes or no now, I put a week, either 24 hours, a week, or two weeks, depending on how big, big the decision is. If I get an email from my manager saying there's a brand opportunity, I'm like, oh, yeah, I quite like the idea of that. I might give myself 24 hours. 
But if it's like, oh, I need to get a new car, I'll say two weeks or three weeks. So it just stops me from making impulsive decisions. I've also learned how powerful meditation is, exercise. I've just fallen in love with running over the last year. I literally love it. It's amazing for it. And I think the point is, is that the reason it's benefit knowing, even in my 30s, is because when you know something, you can control it. It's like the analogy of like, if I said to you both, you sat there now, think about your breathing. I want you to focus on your breath. When you become aware, you start controlling it. And it's the same kind of principle that you can only manage something or make a change when you become aware of it. Um, so yeah, it's been huge for me. And like so many people I've spoken to in the ADHD community, both online and in person, have said the same thing. It's like, when you understand yourself, you start accepting yourself. Like I understand that I can't change every part of me, but many parts I wouldn't want to. Like I do think ADHD, parts of it is a superpower. I would not be here sat talking to you guys now if I didn't have ADHD. I'm certain of it. I wouldn't have taken the risks. I wouldn't have that drive that you get. Like I get that when I'm excited about something and I'm focused on something, you get that laser focus we talk about. It's like a drug. Like I'm so driven. Like I will push through any mountain, you know, to get to where I want to get to. And I love that. I wouldn't want to lose that. But equally, it's nice to feel at peace sometimes too. Um, yeah, yeah. A friend has it and he calls it attention deficit advantage. Like he's got, he's far, far up the scale and he just, he's like a laser beam when he's got his eye on something. Like it's just. And then what way when you have a dopamine um, deficit. deficit, is it that you're constantly drawn towards high potential like, dopamine release. Yeah, and just like you're looking for high stimulation. You're continuously looking for high stimulation. Like just normal boring things like a walk or normal ordinary mundane but peaceful content things don't wouldn't suffice. Like you're just looking for that big rush continuously. So interestingly, you do, you look for the big, so what happens is that it's got a roller coaster effect. So you're hunting for dopamine rewards. And But the problem is when you get into that cycle is that when you get the bigger, the high of the dopamine, the bigger, the drop. And ironically, what you learn with ADHD is actually you need to go against the impulse and do the walks, the meditating, the exercise is a big lift, but do the things that will give you microdosing of dopamine. So your impulse will be to do the big swings. But when you learn about ADHD, you go, actually, I know that's not helpful. Or if I'm going to do, you know, dopamine-driven things like, oh, yeah, I want to start a business or whatever it might be, I need to surround that with more gentle, nurturing mindful ways of, of getting your dopamine raised and keeping it up there. So, you know, one of the things, interestingly, so if you go, so if I went out and so if I ate, if I ate a chocolate bar, right? Chocolate bar sugar gives you loads of dopamine. You feel so much dopamine when you eat sugar. But when you look at the dopamine levels after eating a cho- chocolate bar, it shoots up, but it crashes down, almost like the sugar crash, it crashes down. Interestingly, when you do things like running and exercise, it shoots up but it glides down. Same with ice baths. So if you have an ice bath, it rises high, but it's like a sail, call it the sail sign. It shoots up and then it glides down the other side. So often the healthy ways of getting dopamine give you a much more stable wave of it. So that's one of the things I've definitely learned about that's really, really helped me. So I get up in the morning, I go for an hour walk with my dog, then I do my day and my work and things. And at the end of the day, I do exercise. And I do exercise at the end of the day, like weights, because it gives me that nice lift of dopamine and then like gradually drops towards bedtime. A lot of this stuff is so simple. It's not that difficult, but if you don't know about it, you won't know how to use it. And when I was younger, I had no idea about this. I'm just chasing dopamine, like running around for dopamine, getting these amazing highs, but huge crashes. And surprise, surprise, it made me feel rubbish. And would would going on Love Island be one of those big... Yeah. I, mean, like I can imagine it's a huge exactly. surge. 
Exactly. I mean, it's exact. And it's interesting, if you look at, um, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that CEOs of companies, people in high positions, doctors, high-flying lawyers, all these lots of people that have got into positions that requires a lot of risk or the ability to put yourself out there. Often it tends to be people with ADHD. But, you know, you also find that the people that suffer the most burnout in these positions are people with ADHD as well. It's a very common thing because you're chasing this dopamine so much that it it, it is a detriment to your body. And, um, and, and you know, but we talk about burnout a lot. And I mentioned it a few times, so I might just dig into this a little bit. You know, burnout is something that we're seeing more and more. And 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 the important distinction between that and stress is is how long it goes on for. Like stress is important, and you know, um, we all need to have the ability to feel stress because you know, if you if you guys know that there's something going on in the business, you need to fix it. You need to feel some stress to sort it out, right? You need to fix job done. If you don't have stress, then you basically don't care about it, right? So. When we feel an initial bit of stress in a moment, we get a rise of cortisol and adrenaline, we deal with it, and that's fine. And that can last a day or so, and it should come back down once that problem is dealt with. If it goes on for you know a few weeks, then you enter this kind of chronic state of stress. Your body is in this heightened state, which is not healthy. And if that continues for weeks, months, or even years, eventually your body will cope for it, cope with it for so long, like a flat line, and it'll drop off a cliff edge. And that dropping off the cliff edge where your body and your mind, your emotional, physical, and mental health, when, when all of that starts to give up, that is the burnout. You're basically unable to keep up with the pressure and the stress, and you feel like, oomph. You know, and it feels very similar to anxiety, to depression, and just to sadness, really. And we should, you know, if you feel burnout, and I've had burnout in the past, you know, of course, it's fixable. You have to step away from what's causing the burnout. You need to look at your coping mechanisms. So causes of stress are called stressors, stress ORS, stressors, and the response mentally, physically, and emotional that you feel is stress. So we've got to look at our coping mechanisms and what the stressors are. And if you deal with those and you adequately change them, say for me, looking at alcohol, looking at exercise, looking at good health coping mechanisms. But also for me this year, I mentioned at the start, big thing for me is I really want to uh, live a little bit more this year. I'm reducing the amount of stressors. So when you do that, then you can go back to work or go back to whatever you're doing, and hopefully you don't experience uh, burnout again. But it is a, it's a frightening thing. I mean, have either of you felt that? Have you had burnout before where you felt that bump like that? Have you been okay? One thing that we find fundamental to our health is really good footwear. The only footwear we wear is Vivo Barefoot. Back a number of years ago, probably about seven years ago, friend Tony Riddle said, lads, what foot size are you? And I was like, what do you mean, Tony? He said, I'm going to get you a pair of shoes that are going to change your life. And I was like, come on, it's a pair of shoes. Uh, he got us these black Vivo Barefoot shoes. And since that day, the only shoes I wear, whether I'm on the farm, whether I'm going running, whether I'm doing whatever I'm doing, I only wear Vivo Barefoot shoes. So much so last night, he we had a party and it was a fancy dress party and Stephen wore a tux and he wore his black Vivo barefoot normally shoes. Normally I wear like, you got to wear those pointy kind of dress shoes with a heel on them and your my feet normally hurt afterwards. And uh, I was wearing these cool, I think they're Addis is the, the style. And I felt like I wanted to go skateboarding. Like I felt cool in them and groovy. I think wearing Vivo barefoot shoes, studies have shown that if you wear... Vivo Barefoot Shoes for six months, your foot strength will increase by 60%. You get more feedback from the environment and they encourage you to move more. As we were saying, they're the only shoes we've worn for the last seven years and we've sought them out and become good friends with them. They're an amazing business, a B Corp business and really about 
doing the best that they can do as a business to better the world. They've offered you 15% discount off any Vivo Barefoot shoes. They have a full range of women's, men's, kids in all different styles. Uh, simply use the code HAPPYPAIR15 at the checkout. And really, we found it to be so beneficial for building strong knees, hips, backs, and for general. Like, I really find it helps me move more and feel more at home in my body. And what will that code give you? It gives you 15% discount off any pair of Vivo Barefoot shoes. Just go to vivobarefoot.com. And use the code HAPPYPAIR15 to get 15% off. Now, we're kind of fortunate in that we have each other as a kind of barometer. I guess the the good thing is that the other person will say, listen, you're stressed, go have a swim, go for a run, go do some exercise to let it out. And mm. at the same time, because there's two of us, you can also be blindsided. You can both go down a cul-de-sac together and go, whoa, we're going the right way, great, great. Then in the end you go, oh shit, right, we but, but on this road. But I'd say because we have, we've had 20 years in the health food space, the health health and wellness space, we, we've kind of, because we're front and centre in it, we've created pillars in our life that just really, even when we are, Things are going full on. You're still swimming in the sea every morning. You're still moving lots. And we both don't drink. So we go to bed at nine o'clock. So you've got sleep, you've got movement, you've got lots of friends and community and you've got purpose. So even if it is full on, you've still got a lot of anchors there to, you know, for well-being to persist. So neither of us have experienced it like others. And, and, the, and the not drinking is a huge thing. Like, you know, there's a huge myth that alcohol reduces stress. I mean, this has been scientifically proven that alcohol raises levels of cortisol in your body. So alcohol actually makes you stressed. So if you're stressed already and you're going to the pub at the end of the week after a busy week and drinking alcohol, the feeling of dissociation you feel, don't confuse that with not feeling stressed or that it's reducing your stress because that's not true. It increases your cortisol level. So on an inflammatory, a my, um, on a microvascular, uh, on a cerebral level, it's causing stress. And actually, if you don't drink, your capacity is therefore higher. I mean, there's a great, mo- I'm doing a master's in public mental health at the moment. And there's a really interesting module that they look out, look at in terms of um, staff well-being, and it's useful for individuals as well. And it's, it's called the job demand resource model. And the idea is that every job will have demands and every job will have resources. What demands mean is anything that is um, stressful or put stress on you uh, that might be challenging, that requires your energy. And resources are anything that energizes you. They can be resources in literally things that you're able to use to help you work, but they also are friendships in the workplace Things like your salary, work um, benefits, being able to have time off, having adequate holidays, all those things. So it's interesting when you apply that to your own life, because then if you think you think like you don't drink alcohol and then you do your exercise, you do a swim in the morning, you're out in the sea, you've got each other. Those are all amazing job resources. They build your resilience towards burnout much, much higher. And then on the other side, the balancing scales, you've got your job demands. And obviously, if that demand increased, 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 eventually your resources will burn out. But if like you guys are, and like we've talked about, you've got a very high resource you're much more resilient against, resilient against the demand. And that's a really important thing. And that's why I argue with people to say, look, I know life is busy. Life is never not busy. You've always got things to do, but there's nothing more important than your health. And in fact, if you look after your health, your health will look after everything else. You know, that's so important, isn't it? If you look after your health, you're fundamentally better at everything else in your life. Everything. Totally agree. 100% Many agree. people don't have the self-love though to actually I look after. It, it, ultimately, ultimately, I think... 
so many of our decisions in modern day life are predicated by how much love we feel for ourselves. Because typically it's the person who doesn't feel that much self-love can often make the less healthier choice because they don't love themselves enough. So I think ultimately, and often this is as a result of the family that we're born in. So ultimately it's quite difficult. It takes huge consciousness and awareness to change. You've got to have, it's why that is a famous um, uh, quote that I love. I wrote it in, in my first book, Live Well Every Day. Um, it's from a German philosopher called Nietzsche. And he said, he who, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. And, it, and it's kind of very true in every aspect of your life in the sense that when you have a why, when you have purpose, when you have value in your life, you'll see the meaning in everything and you'll see the reason to do things. But you know, if you don't feel purpose and you don't love yourself, why would you care about sleep, exercise, nutrition? You aren't going to care, are you? Because you you don't care about yourself and you love yourself. And and actually, you know, with me a year ago, you know, with Alex a year and a bit ago, you know, I didn't love myself. I felt awful for so many different things that happened to me or happened in my life. And I didn't feel self-worth. And the first thing I had to do was find the self-worth. And that's where a lot of the pain was last year. I had to go through a lot of processing, a lot of dealing with things that have happened, also facing my demons and things that I would do differently and look back on. And and, and all of that and dealing with all of that, you know, allowed me to find my worth and value. And then once I found that, as you say, that's when you go, actually, I deserve to go for an hour walk in the morning. I deserve to care what I eat and to enjoy reading. Like I love just... Now I put my phone down and like my phone's going down. I don't need to do, I'm going to read now. It's my time. But I wouldn't have had like a year and a half ago. I wouldn't have had the self-worth to go like, I deserve to sit down and read for now. And I I shouldn't be disturbed. I don't, I want to have my own time. But now I see that and I see the value in that. So I would say to anyone listening, like if you feel like I did before, like be kind to yourself, be compassionate, but know that, you know, you do deserve all of those things and you deserve self-love but start gently and just question that little why, like, why don't I deserve that? And, you know, start finding your corner within yourself. Beautiful. Now you said last year, like, was a really tough year because you had to deal with all these, you know, the challenges which had been accruing over the previous, whatever, five years or mm-hmm. in the past. Anyway, what did you find as some of the most useful tools or techniques that really, like, when you were in the ring, you know, fighting those demons, like, what things really helped really? lift you up and bring you out of the challenging situations? So one of the biggest things, mindfulness and like mind hacking and working on my um like my my mindset was the biggest things, like just trying to change the way that I see the world, going from almost like a victim way, victim mentality to like things happen to me, things have happened in my past, but that doesn't have to define my entire future. And fun if it's where so myself and Bear Grills, who's very obviously a very famous adventurer, Paul McKenna, one of the kind of fathers, I guess, of of modern um uh, psychology um, and a few others. We, we got together and we started this mental fitness app for men called Metal M E T T L E. So metal meaning resilience, and we started it because we think that fundamentally, especially for men, you've got to like learn that permission part hugely. Like a lot of men just don't want to like. It's really interesting. If you look at studies that men, a lot of men, don't want to engage in mental health stuff. They don't see necessarily the value of. Of, of, of working on mental fitness. And a lot of it doesn't come from like an ignorance at all. It comes from like, you know, I've got work to do. I've got the responsibilities. I need to put my family first. You know, you, you have to almost like see the value of like working on these things. So one of the biggest things for me last year was was working on that. You know, I do every morning, I do mindfulness. I use Metal myself, the app, and we do within that, you've got, you get prescribed an activity for the morning based on your own metrics. You use AI to look at what you need. 
Um, and then I do that in the morning, get from the right mindset and stuff. I go about my day and and the evening I do it for sleep as well. And, you know, I, I honestly would say to people, like, if you're going to work on one area of your life, uh, one area of health, start with your sleep. Like, honestly, you know, the studies are pretty obvious that people that sleep well, live longer, have better relationships and are, are more disease-free. Um, and if you sleep well, you make better decisions, you eat better, you exercise more, you engage in better activities, you just make better decisions in your entire life. So it's it's an interesting one. Um, but going back to that point, you have to work on the mindset first. And, you know, that's why we've developed this app, Metal. We've launched it in, um, in November. It's doing really well. Men are loving it. And obviously women can use it as well. The reason we've designed it for men is because there's 20,000 mine there's 20,000 apps out there um for kind of health and not one of them really is designed specifically for men and there's so many barriers for men using it and the reason that men will engage in mental fitness is very different for women so what we've done is deliberately design something to remove those barriers gamify it make it designed for the things that men want and make it really really to the point so you need to use it really for four or five minutes a day to get the benefits and yeah, just working on that. Uh, you know, I, I like doing things in my life. Like you've seen all the kind of things I talk about and do, they're all kind of born really out of maybe selfishly my own experiences. And therefore, when I believe in something and I'm like, this is this is something that's helping me, I then think, well, it might help others. Uh, and I love that. I mean, it's exactly, you know, similar to what you guys do really, right? Your passion, you literally live and breathe the stuff that you do. That's why you've been so successful with it. And you can feel when we met uh, you know, a couple of months ago on that night and we're at that event with food and stuff. Like you, you're so inspired and you enjoy what you do and therefore that's like a infectious bug, isn't it? You pass it on to other people. Wow. Yeah, 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 totally. Metal sounds brilliant. What are some of the pillars of metal? Like obviously mindfulness. Mental fitness is a great word. I love that word. Yeah. I haven't heard that word before. And yet I think nice, it's yeah, well, 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 the thing about mental fitness is great that it, it means that there's, you know, fitness generally you've got to show up every day and do something. Whereas, you know, it sounds like activity-based mental fitness. Like it's a nice... Kind of yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, we think of physical fitness. Why don't, you know, we've got physical health and mental health. We've got physical health. Why don't we have mental, uh, sorry, physical fitness? Why don't we have mental fitness? You know, it's like the, the analogy I really like is that, you know, you guys love working out, right? Imagine now you both said, right, I've completed physical fitness now. I could do loads of pull-ups. I can do a bit of weights and swim in the sea. How many weeks would it be before your physical fitness falls down? A couple of months, maybe you'll be you'd lose your you'd lose a lot of your fitness, wouldn't you? You yeah. did crazy, Alex. What are you talk? I haven't completed fitness in my life. Or oh, I never need to go to the gym again for the rest of my life. No, we know that's not true. But we don't think of mental health in the same way. And the good news about mental fitness is it doesn't matter where you start from. It matters about turning up each day, working on it and building it up. And you can get better when you get up there to a good place. You can you can stay there. So the idea of mental fitness, a lot of it ties into the physical stuff you do, like exercise and so on. But the app is specifically focused on the mind hacking, mindfulness side of it. So what that really means is when you download Metal, you go onto it, you fill in a questionnaire, which is from the World Health Organization, assesses your state of mental well-being. Then the app uses AI based on your answers, looking at what you need and it prescribes you activities for each day to do. And what we know about men from studies is they don't like to have loads of choice, like choice paralysis. I mean, I hate, you know, when you go on a website and you Google like at a sofa and you've got 20 sofas, 30 sofas, no one wants to look at 30 sofas. You want to know with the sofa you need, the size, the shape and color that you want for your place, right? You filter it right down. So what this does is it, it basically looks at what you need. Well, do you need more sleep? Do you need to work on your confidence? Do you need to work on your mental resilience? And then it prescribes activities you do each day and you just follow them. Some of them are breath work. Some of those are mind hacking. Some of them are listening to inspirational quotes. You know, it's one of those things that we've all been there. 
when you get up on the wrong side of the bed in the morning, you're in a bad mood, it affects your entire day. So what the metal does is it gets in there at the start of your day, it gets you in the right frame of mind to approach the day in the right way. So you have that knock-on effect. And when you come to bed in the evening, you do your sleep uh, activity, you get yourself in a good place for sleep and you rest. And what we're seeing is that over weeks and months, car- people are feeling calmer, happier, less stressed, more capable, more confident, and more resilient. And that's what we're seeing as results. And, and that's just so exciting because, you know, ultimately, you know, the world is better with happier and healthier men in it. You know, it's not just men that benefits from good men's mental fitness. It's everyone, you know, because I say to women, you know, you might not be a man, you're a woman, but I'm sure that you have men in your life that you love and care about. And if you knew that they were happy and healthier, wouldn't that be a good thing? And so it's been amazing seeing how many women have supported us actually and sent it to their brothers or their friends, their husbands or you know parents and stuff. It's been it's been an incredible journey so far, I must say. Amazing. Well, well done. What it like literally I had ten here. What about like mental health? Because you're a huge mental health advocate, and men is the one group that I don't think there there isn't as much conversation around it. Like women typically come to the table much quicker than men do, and men very often kind of bottle it up or. Leave it's it until sad, it's, isn't it? it's, it's sad, but the stigma is huge. You know, men are are up to ten times more likely to take their own life than a woman, and you know that's not because of an inherent biological difference in men. We're just, you know, it's like the the quote I love is that society uh, craves men to speak, but trains them to be silent. And I think wow. that's probably the most powerful way of putting it. You know, we have a society that cultures men to be. Stiff upper lip, be quiet, be a big man, don't cry, don't show weakness, be tough. And then when they're at their weakest point, when they're struggling to, you know, even get up in the morning, how can they unlearn everything that you've taught them throughout their lives and ask for help? You know, whereas women, we tell them to talk, to be emotional, to share, to be in community, to be open. And therefore, when they struggle, first of all, they don't find it as hard and they do it a lot quicker, exactly as you said. They come to the table much quicker. Men, if they come to the table, come when they've been suffering for years. I've had men message me saying, I've suffered with crippling depression quietly and silently for 10 years and only today I've decided it's enough. Why have we got men suffering for 10 years? What a waste of life to suffer for so long before getting help. I mean, I've had men coming into A&E when I worked in the hospital there. I've stopped working in the hospital now to focus on everything that I do, but they're coming in going, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at my wit's end. I feel suicidal. I feel very dark. I'm like, how long have you felt dark? And they, cause they commonly say years, you know, how long, if one of you hurt your ankle, how long would you wait before you go and get the doctor to look after, look at it? Like a week or something. If you oh, walk and your yeah. ankle is hurt, you go what maybe even, a few days. I knew it was serious. It could be hours. You go, you go yeah. straight away. But you know, people are feeling so dark that it's just ruining their lives, and they sit quiet for years. And I think that's the reality that we have to realise. And the reason metal is something I'm so passionate about is because I want. It's not just about building mental fitness, which is huge, but it's also getting people in tune to know. Okay, like something isn't quite right. My scores, because you put in your daily, you put in scores and stuff into the app, and how you're feeling and stuff, and you put your mood in. And when you're seeing like red each day, and hang on, your mood is low for the last three days, it's saying to you, right, come on, let's let's work this out. What's going on? And if we can't work it out, get help. And that's what I want people to do is realize actually you shouldn't tolerate feeling really low for any length of time. Obviously, we go through difficult times. Obviously, there's times in life where something happens and we're going to grieve or we feel bad or we feel down. But feeling down for no good reason or feeling down for a long time without seeing improvement is not something that we should tolerate. And 
I just, you know, my I can't remove suffering from everyone's life. We all, you will both know and experience times of hardship. Suffering is inevitable in life, but life shouldn't be defined by suffering. We should have happiness and joy and good days and ability to go out and make the most of our lives. And that's what we should focus on with our children. And that's why I think, like, if you build children and young people's mental fitness, you'll have a knock-on effect on the rest of society. We'll have a kinder population, we'll have a happier population and a successful population. And I do a lot of work with schools and education. And, you know, one of the studies the kind of it shows this very powerfully looked at happiness and school results and they found that children that had good well-being structures in the school had good 360 degree views of well-being and mindfulness within the school had better academic scores they had higher academic scores than schools with little or no well-being focus and they also had lower levels of absenteeism so children stayed in school more and they did better and another interesting survey found that schools with lots of well-being support for children had happier happier staff and higher staff retention because if you ask any teacher what's the thing that scares you the most you know, yeah, they might joke about the exams and you know, you know, the 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 uh, exam boards coming in, but they, what they really will tell you is they worry about the mental health of their children, of the wow. children at school. You know, so all of a sudden, if you focus on this one thing, it affects the parents' lives, the teachers' lives, the children's lives, and they grow up to be adults that are more capable to deal with life. And what state do you think the kid, like children's mental health, is now, like in the UK? difficult. It's a difficult place, but that's because of the past, not the present or the future. And the reason I say that is because the, the, you know, the word crisis is used a lot. I think we're in a very difficult state. The reason that that is the last 20, 30 years, um, but the changes we're making now, I think- And what will, do you mean by, what do you mean by the, the problems from the last 20, 30 years? The way we viewed mental health up until 1960, 1961, it was illegal in the UK to take your own life. And what that meant is that anyone that tried to take their own life would get a criminal record. That's why we use the word, or why that's why the word has been used, committed suicide, which we should try and let go of. And I mean, lots of people use it, and there's no judgment of that, and I've used it in the past. You commit murder, you commit theft, you commit robbery, you commit GBH. Do you commit murder? You don't commit a heart attack or commit cancer. Um, and then what that tells you is that up until 1961, people were incarcerated. Think of the knock-on effect in society of, of that stigma. And that's what carries through. When people talk about stigma. Think of that knocking through the generations. No wonder people are so ashamed about it. People used to try and bribe doctors not to put committed suicide on the death certificate because it would bring shame on the family. And we're not talking a long time ago here. My dad was born in 1958. He's 66 years old. So... You know, those those things, those attitudes take time to pass. And in the last 20 years, I think we've been very, very academically focused in schools to the detriment in the UK. We don't actually score very highly compared to the rest of Europe. And we have some of the most academic focused versus well-being focused education systems. Whereas if we look at other parts of the world like Scandinavia and so on, uh, and other parts of Europe where they have much more learn through play, much more mindful, much more nature-based uh, and health-focused education, they do better education and they have less incidences of mental illness. So what we want to see and what is happening and hopefully is continue to happen is that we're going to have a shift um, towards a more balanced system. Wales has made a huge step forward, much more than England at the moment. Wales now have what you call a four-purpose approach. And what that means is they've but one of the purposes of school life is to create happy and healthy and good children with good well-being. And the weighting of that importance is equal to academia. 
That wow, sounds like a that's cool thing, brilliant. but it means a huge thing because top-down, funding-wise, top-down, school structure-wise, it's a game-changer. Whereas in England, you've got maths, English, all these different things, how, what, mental health at the bottom. And it's profound. And that's not about the bottom because the teachers, you ask any teacher and they're trying their best, doing everything they can, they really care about this. It's the system. And the system is what creates and cultivates the environment that children are in. So changes are coming. Our focus is changing. We are looking at changes in the curriculum. I think the awareness of this and how important it is changing. I think in the next five or 10 years, the changes that we're going to see coming through are going to make a huge difference. I mean, I one of the projects I worked on was getting early support hubs funded for England. We've got the pilot hubs funded where these will be walk-in support for under 25-year-olds so they get instant access to support and they'll also be there to build. Is that financial support or what? Or is that Every, Yeah, exactly. Support, I'm glad you support. mentioned it. Everything. So these early support hubs will feel like a cafe vibe. Um, cafe vibe, youth club kind of hybrid place where you've got um, youth workers as a centre point and you have like other support services such as psychologists and so on as well as advisors, career advisors. So young people can go in and be like, I'm struggling with my home life or I'm worried about career or you know, I'm struggling with my mental health or I feel lonely. And these hubs will provide a centre point to help that young person get them into a good place. They also, some of the ones that have started have, you know, kayaking attached to them, art, sport, music, community to get them, get young people back into the community. So some of these projects that with looking at the education system and thinking of ways of building young people's mental health will have a knock-on effect. But right now, the numbers are bad because of what's happened. But what we have to focus on is dealing with some of the challenges, obviously, that are here, but also what about the future? Like, how do we change the now and what's going on right now to change the future? That's what I really want to focus on. You know, we've got to help young people that are struggling right now. We have to. But also, we can't just carry on doing the same thing. You know, Einstein's theory of madness, repeating the same thing and expecting a different mm. You know, what what about like anyone listening who's who's a parent and going okay well I absolutely don't want my child to you know go through real hardships as they become a young adult and an adult obviously getting to the root of the mental health issue is really you know it starts at young forming good habits and instilling things like what advice would you give to any parent out there that's gone right I really want the best for my kids mental health I really want to manage it so that as they grow up they feel secure they feel supported they have good habits like what advice do you give to teachers mm-hmm. and parents well, one of the things I've worked on, and I, I wrote my first, well, my first children's book was called A Better Day, which won children's book of the year for nonfiction last year. And I wrote that book to be the book that every young person needs to build mental fitness, to build their health, to now to deal with stress of things like exams, to deal with things like bullying, but also to how to build good relationships, develop healthy relationship with food, exercise, self-love. All of these things are captured in my book, A Better Day. And recently, um, only a, a week or so ago, uh, A Better Day Journal was published. So that was the-, the It the looks bro- cool. It looks Brother beautiful. Bank- There's great imagery Bank- and great kind of, it looks very interactive. It doesn't just look like a lot of blank you. pages. To I'm, really, I'm really proud of it. So the better day was the, the real theory and teaching them the ideas. And there is activities, a lot of activities in that book, but the journals then bringing that to life with, you know, real world activities that work that are tried and tested, you know, from things like early journaling methods to, you know, mindfulness uh, activities to help like reframe negative thinking and stuff. And the two books obviously make a good partnership. Both can be used standalone. You know, I really recommend you put them on the bed. So I actually was out for lunch two days ago I had lunch just myself. You're talking about dating yourself or going out on your own. Like I love doing that. I had Rolo with me and I sat down and this, this lady came up. She was in the kind of a, I think late thirties or maybe forties. And she said, 
can I sit with you for a moment? I said, yeah, sure, have a sit. And, and she said that um, she had a um, young son, son who was like 12 or 13, and and uh, he seemed fine, like normal and all this kind of stuff. One day he'd come downstairs and said, look, I've read this book and I just want to admit, I'm, you know, say that I'm really struggling. I feel really dark and I'm difficult. And he'd read my book, A Better Day, and I talk in there about the importance of re- like understanding how to reach out. And she basically was quite emotional, actually. She was quite like teary and just said, like, thank you, because... Like if it wasn't for that, perhaps he wouldn't have talked to us. So, you know, I, I think if wow. any, just put the book down in the bedroom or put it on the bedside table, put it, you know, somewhere they can see it and they can read it. And yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, the book, you know, the first book, you know, it's 50 or 60,000 copies that have been bought with the book that was published last year, so a better day. Um, and, you know, so many schools use it and stuff for, for resources. So please, you know, check it out. You write very well. You write really well. Like your captions on Instagram are very, like they're, you write beautifully, like very relatable and very of the people and encouraging. It's not ego based at all. Like it's like you're a good writer. So I'd imagine the book's very good. I just try and um, I think I think things that come. I generally write from. This sounds cheesy from the heart. Like most stuff I share, things that I've experienced and related to, and therefore they are personal and they feel that way because they are. You know, I'm writing about stuff that's that I have been through and experienced. I didn't have the easiest time of school. You know, a lot of it I think was probably to do with ADHD, but experienced bullying and that kind of stuff. And I just always try and put myself in that position, you know, like what was it like? What did that person need? And like I I, I wrote a better day as the book that I wish I had. You know, in the same way as the mind manual, the adult book that I've wrote, um, the written, sorry. And what age? What age is the kids' book for? Like a better day? Is that for? So, so, kind of- uh, so uh, uh, I would say if uh, with parental health, eight or nine, but then all the way up to kind of thirteen or fourteen. But I've had, you know, depends on the kind of reading ability and so on. The journal is very, very much more flexible because I think it's so much as activity based. So you could be like a strong eight-year-old uh, reader all the way up to kind of fourteen or fifteen. But really. it, it, It'd probably work for an adult as well, I'd imagine, because we all have an inner child and it's probably simple and easy and colourful and bright and not kind of too... Well, I have had so many parents say, stop calling it children's book, because if you haven't learned it before, then it's for us as well. And um, for social media has changed so much, you know, in the last couple of years of the parents, like if they understand how to manage, you know, how to support young people, then that helps them as well. So it just really surprised me how many parents have come back to me and said, actually, I found it really helpful because if I understand, I can help support them better as well as them reading the book. So yeah, it's been it's been incredible really. And yeah, I I, I must say it's, um, it's very rewarding. When someone messages you, I've got a few DMs I've screenshotted and kept just to kind of look back on in life and just some messages where people have said like the difference it's made and with the mind manual for, for adults and stuff, the messages they've sent, you know, about using that mind, the mind manual is all about mental fitness for, for adults and the messages I've had, you know, it does, it does stay with you. Like it makes a difference and it does inspire you to kind of keep going, you know? Yeah. Brilliant. On the topic of social media, I think this is really like as Ourself, we're in a similar space where it's a double-edged sword. It's a wonderful tool, opportunity to connect, opportunity to inspire. And it's also like dealing with an addictive drug. Um, it's something that draws you in. I know when I'm on TikTok, I literally will post something and I will close the app as soon as it's like, <gasps> it's, gonna, it's just going to suck me in. Um, how do you yourself find that balance and how do you advocate, advocate that in a space when, you know, different research will say that social media is not good for our mental health? Full so- stop. So it's interesting. Um, social media, first of all, isn't going anywhere. So the question of like, uh, should we have it or not? I mean, you could not have social media accounts, of course, but in terms of as a population-wide thing, it's not going anywhere. So it's really important to think about how do we use it well and healthily. The evidence is quite mixed. 
Social media, there's as much evidence that says social media helps people as doesn't help them. And if you think about it this way, so when I was diagnosed with ADHD, I had more benefit and more help and more psychological safety, to be honest, and comfort from social media and the communities, the ADHD community and so on on there than I did from any NHS website of support. And that's just being honest. Like that's where I found the most support. Even the mental health space, like I get so much help watching other people's accounts, feeling inspiration, feeling comfort than I do elsewhere. But equally, I've had some of the most sadness where I've had negative stuff that the message to you or or you've seen stuff that's upsetting. Like I hate seeing content on there that's upsetting or horrible because it makes you feel so bad. So there's, it's a, what, what I'm trying to say is that there's two real sides to it. What One thing the evidence does show, that's there's two things that evidence, there's lots of things that evidence shows, but there's two things that really stand out to me that, that, that there is real strong evidence for, and that's screen time and managing what you're seeing. So when you look at studies, the longer someone is on their phone each day, there's a sudden after an hour or so, there's a spike and an upward trend of psychological symptoms. So the longer you're online, the more likely to feel anxious, sad, low, depressed, unhappy, um, and so on, which makes sense, right? Because partly the longer you're online, the more likely you are to see harmful content or just feel those effects or whatever. And is that social media in general? Like the, like social media hour? in general. So so social media in general. And if you spend more than a couple of hours. But the, the big thing as well is that the longer you're on social media for, the less you're doing positive things that will build your mental health, right? You know, that idea of like, we're talking about the resources and demands. Like if you're spending three hours a day on social media, that's three hours where you're not outside, not with family, you're not exercising, you're not resting, you're not topping up your cup, reading a book and and doing things you enjoy. So it's not just being online is harmful. It's how much it takes you away from other things. And an interesting fact is that on average in the UK, people spend four hours a day on social media. If you slept eight hours a day and you're at work eight hours a day, that's taking up quite a lot of your free time if you're doing four hours a day. So the big tip on screen time is, for God's sake, have a screen time limit on your phone. I've got one. I allow an hour a day on social media. I do. Um, and if I go past the hour on my phone, I click like allow 15 minutes, allow 15 minutes. And you might think, well, what's the point if you're doing that? But it's telling me constantly you've used it. So if you're going to use it more, then use it for a specific reason. Like say I'm posting something or I'm checking, I'm doing some comments or whatever, but it's it's cognitive. I know that, that I'm spending time and the screen time thing has helped me so much. I've like halved my screen time. I probably spend two hours a day now. So an hour is allowed. Then after I'm hitting the 15 minutes, I allow two hour a day. And given that's, you know, like you guys, big part of my job, that's pretty good, right? The other thing I would say is thinking about who you follow. So harmful content, right? The biggest tip is here, look at your settings on TikTok and social media. Make sure you've got a high level of sensitivity for protection against harmful content. You can look at that in your settings. You can change your Instagram to protect you from harmful content. So it'll filter out anything that's harmful, horrible to see. That's the first thing. Second thing I would do is just go through your followers and see, as in the people you follow, and think, do these people inspire me, motivate me, teach me something or make me happy? If they don't, unfollow them. And even at worst, if they make you feel bad, definitely unfollow them. And people might go, a common question, oh, what about if someone I kind of know? I don't really know that well, but I might see them out and about. I don't want to unfollow them. They'll think it's rude. Then meet them. You can meet their posts and stories. So they don't know that you that you don't see it. You just blocking at your end. And I would say that's one of the most profound things to do. If you're going to spend two hours a day or three hours a day on social media, fill it full of things that enrich your life. 
You know, mine is like, I love my sport, sort of football. I've got Formula One on there. I follow accounts with a lot of positivity. I love quotes and mindfulness and stuff. So I follow those kind of things. I, and I follow, you know, stuff that makes me feel good. But I've got no time for following stuff that makes me compare myself or makes me feel bad. So those two big tips I'd say to people, screen time and manage who you're following. And, and a good trick to use is at the first of every month, because we often accumulate people who follow, the first every month or every three or four months, put a little reminder in your diary to go through your followers and then follow. Otherwise, you'll subconsciously start adding together more followers. You'll start, oh, yeah, follow them and follow them before you know it. You're following people again that make you feel bad, you know, because that way our tendency is to repeat things, right? We often repeat behaviors unless we really tackle them. So those things can really help, I think. But ultimately, social media, it is here to say, stay, but make sure you use it for you as a tool. We should be using it for us, not against us. Great. Yeah, I like that. Really, really practical. Um, final question, Alex, is how do you find the balance between the importance of typical growth occurs when there's adversity, when there's struggle that you have to overcome? And often that's where um, we get a, a kind of sustained feeling of um, satisfaction. You know, you've, you've had to go through a challenge. So how do you balance or even what are your thoughts on this? The balance between the needs for discomfort and overcoming it and also accepting yourself where you're at, self-love, comfort, look after yourself. Um, all these issues, how do you balance that dichotomy? Because they seem two opposites. Mm. I think you have, you know, you have your chosen discomforts in life and you have your unchosen discomforts, don't you? Like there's things that happen to you, obviously like things like my brother is very extreme, but there's lots of things that'll happen to you in life that you'd never choose. The things we have to overcome, like heartbreak, breakups. You might be in a relationship and have to go through a breakup. You don't necessarily, you might have chosen it, might have ended the relationship, you might not. But there you're kind of, discomforts that no one really would want. And we build our resilience to deal with those. But then we also have our chosen discomfort. So, you know, I'm doing a master's in public mental health. I've chosen to <laughs> to put myself through exams and essays in my 30s. Um, um, sometimes I'm like, why am I doing this? But I know at the end of that challenge, I'll feel really good. And, you know, in September, I should have, September, October, I finished it. And I know that I feel great because I've learned a lot. It will have challenged me. I'll groan from it and I feel good. That's a chosen discomfort. Now, as I said, we can't really control necessarily our unchosen discomforts. So what we need to do is manage based on what we have on our plate, how many chosen things that we do. And what I mean by that really is just thinking like, we don't know where it's around the corner and we shouldn't you know, live life afraid of things that might happen. But also it's making sure you've got something left in the cup. You know, If you're stretching yourself to the limit with loads of different projects, what if something else gets thrown in the works? What if there's a financial difficulty? What if there's something, you know, an added thing that happens that you now need to deal with? You've got nothing left. There's no reserve. It's like living every month, um, spending all of your money up to the up to the last pound. You know, unfortunately, a lot of people have to do that because that's the challenges. But if you can, then trying to save a bit back allows you to have that buffer, doesn't it? I think it's the same with your energy. And then balancing that really with like, do you need to have is what's too much and what's too little. I mean, it's good to have challenges, but it's also great to feel at peace. Like I, I think I, my biggest thing in the next few years is I just want to feel at peace. Like, I want to have a balance between challenges, but also just enjoying being able to sit with myself, spend time with friends, just be you know happy and stuff. So yeah, I guess the question is the why. Like if you're doing something because you want to and you want the challenge, that's cool, but just don't do it to prove stuff to other people. Just do it for yourself. You know, that's probably the most likely way that people end up in situations they're taking on too much is because they're trying to do it for other people too much. You know what I mean? So balance, you know, enjoy a challenge, enjoy self-care 
and know that when you do face those unchosen challenges that you can get through, but get help. Don't do it alone. Like you guys got each other and also your families, of course, like it's so important to have each other. I mean, it's my, my assistant, Abby, she's a twin and she said like, you just got each other, you know, you're there, you got each other's back, but you know, not everyone, you know, I'm not a twin, but I've got brother, well, I've got my brother and I've got my friends, you know, lean on other people. You know, you don't need to deal with challenges alone, do you? Very good advice. Beautiful. Any closing thoughts just to leave anyone for 2024 on kind of just the pillars of mental health and a tiny little, you know, motivational wrap up? Yeah, Go sure. Come on, Alex. Go on, Alex. This. Have I got like this? a crescendo. Come on. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I think you know, I love your energy. And when I met you and stuff, I thought, you know, you're really good people. I, was, I really enjoyed your, your your company. It's amazing. Likewise. You pleasure. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you you got to come visit. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, I mean, what I'd say to people is that, you know, make um, make 2024 the year of mental fitness, you know, make it the year that you put your mind first and everything else will follow, you know, be kind to yourself, be compassionate, um, enjoy the things that are ahead of you, but know that when you do face those difficult times that you can get through, you know, the reason I wrote the title A Better Day for the book is that I constantly say to myself that there's always hope of a better day. So no matter what you face, things do get better, this too shall pass. Work on yourself a little bit each day and that'll build up to a big change in the year ahead. Enjoy 2024 and yeah, thank you so much for, for having me. You're oh, a star. Thanks, Alex. Really yeah, are. beautiful. Thanks, Alex. That was great. Thank you so much for yeah. having me. Really yes, appreciate it. Yeah. And Cheers, come Alex. visit anytime, please. Thank yeah, you, guys. Thanks. While we have you, once a week we write a newsletter. It's called Happier. It's got simple, tried and tested practices to make your life better. We include recipes and practices that you can apply on a daily basis to make your life happier. We've had lots of people say before that it's really helped make their life better. So you can sign up on the happypairs.ie, our weekly newsletter called Happier.